Hi there, this is Esther, and on behalf of my co-hosts Anna and Weja, thank you for being a faithful listener of the podcast Slow Agency. As you might have noticed, we take our time creating each season of the podcast. We want to create a space where you can hear slow, thoughtful dialogue among writing researchers and writing center professionals. We also want to make sure that you get the resources to help you navigate the trends and challenges facing our student writers and our centers. So, I'm excited to tell you about Season 3. You'll hear us chat with Noreen Lee about her book, Internationalizing the Writing Center, a guide for developing a multilingual writing center. We're also speaking with Joe Essid and Brian McTagg about Change in the Writing Center and their edited collection, Writing Centers at the Center of Change. And you'll also hear a conversation we had with Susan Lawrence and Terry Zawaki about their book, Rewriting the Center, Approaches to Supporting Graduate Students in the Writing Center. We hope you enjoy Season 3. Welcome to Slow Agency. This podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down, think, dialogue, and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Namubiru. I'm Wajali. And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. As writing centers continue to support students who speak multiple languages, some scholars are also starting to consider how the writing center could be a space to conduct foreign language consultation. This is one of the questions that our guest for this episode considers in her book, Internationalizing the Writing Center, a guide for developing a multilingual writing center. My name is Noreen Leip. Um, I'm at Dickinson College. When I was hired there, I was hired to be the director of the writing program, which includes the Norman M. Eberly Multilingual Writing Center. Um, Several years um, into my job, I was promoted to associate provost of academic affairs. And um, then um, I'm also a professor of educational studies. And so um, my main job is to administer the writing program and the writing center, which offers writing tutoring in 11 languages. Um, Every spring I teach the tutor training course. You know, I teach too, I have a one-in-one teaching load. Um, I administer the the WID program, our first year seminar, which is the first tier of our writing program, do assessment, faculty development. Um, I know that sounds like a lot, but any of my colleagues at small liberal arts colleges will tell you that uh, we tend to wear a lot of hats. It's not all that unusual. How did you end up at Dickinson in this role? Um, yeah, so when I when I graduated college, I knew I wanted to go on to graduate school right away. And I ended up studying at Temple for both my master's and my PhD. And I took... From the get-go, I was a a TA in their program called ELECT, which was a program for basic writers. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was a research assistant, or no, uh, I don't know what we called it exactly, but I was part of a small team of people who read 
thousands of placement test essays and placement mm-hmm. classes. This was the eighties. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that was, that was an interesting experience too. And, and I was taking a lot of courses there in rhetoric and comp, but also in literature, especially as a master's student. And when it came time to do my PhD, I had bonded with a mentor and I loved American lit and I loved, it was the nineties then at that point, And there was all that discussion going on about the culture wars and reinventing the canon. And I just thought that was so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up writing my, my dissertation and my, my first book was in um, multicultural American lit, but mm-hmm. um, then I got my first tenure track job and at a regional state university which um, did not have a, a writing program administrator at the time, um, did not have any placement system. So when you when you went into a, a composition class of which I had a four four load back in those days, and we taught a lot of composition, mm-hmm. uh, we would have students in that class who were um, very underprepared and needed a lot of support, and students as good as any of your best students. And so the learning gap was huge. And I remember it being such such a soul-crushing thing because I knew these people aren't going to make it because they just needed more time. And whereas Temple had levels and levels and levels of writing to help scaffold people to where they needed to be, it was kind of a sink or swim, you know, they would fail. So I became involved in... Um, uh, founding the writing center there, which no longer mm. so, but, um, you know, so, and, and, um, I wanted to, I, I really seriously thought this is for me. I want to direct this writing center and, um, a colleague at the time, you know, senior to me told me, oh, you shouldn't do that. You'll be marginalized if you do that. You know, mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. usual stuff with, mm-hmm. especially this would have been yeah, this would have been the 90s, late 90s, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I didn't. And we hired someone and then that person resigned. And then the new chair said, do you want to do this? And I said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I knew I had missed the boat the first time. I regret mm-hmm. it. So I worked as the writing center director there and then came to a you know point in my career where I knew I needed to move on. And um and also made the conscious choice to go into administration more and, um, you know, kind of make a mid-career transition into another but related area. And as I, as I um, started on my path to Dickinson, I accepted the job. I was excited about it. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be sad that I'm not teaching lit. Because by that point, I was teaching a lot more lit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never was. I mean, I've gotten to teach a little bit of lit. I generally, I I don't here. I do um, vastly different things. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I I didn't actually miss it as much as I thought. And and the writing program administrator, the faculty development, working with the tutors in the writing center, uh, has filled my cup many mm-hmm. times over. Yeah. Is your PhD in compret or um, lit? No, it's in, it's in lit, but I've, oh, okay. so when, when I did my um, PhD, we had to choose a primary and a secondary area. My mm-hmm. secondary area was comp ret, but my dissertation and was, right. th- th- that's really the, the difference. It was the dissertation was in lit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, to kind of situate um, ourselves and also our listeners to the book, um, can you tell us about the history and the rationale of the um, Multilingual Writing Center at Dickinson, which we imagine it it probably directly informs the exigence of your book? Yeah. So um, in uh, 2009, when I started my job at Dickinson, Mind you, I told you I was coming off a four four load. Uh, the provost uh, said, um, "No, uh, you don't need to teach at all in that first semester. Just get acquainted. Just, just, just get your feet wet. Just, you know." And and I thought, "What? You know, I've never not taught. Um, I, I I don't think I know how to do that." So I thought, "Let me let me make some good use of my time and do something I might not have the time to do if I were teaching." And um, also, I always remember the advice from my um, uh, good friend, Candace Spiegelman, who was who was one of us, uh, you know, writing studies person. Um, but, you know, she's she's passed away. Um, we went to graduate school together, actually. And uh, she was in a, a, a study group with me, actually. And um, she was telling me once when I was talking about making career change, um, not to go. It, it doesn't help to go into a place and uh, with all these plans and do a top down thing, you know, you have to kind of find out what the people want to do and then advise them, you know, with your expertise. But um, that has been something I've lived with, you know, like what, what do you need? So when I started at Dickinson, um, I think we announced at a chairs meeting or something that I wanted to visit every department I called it my ethnographic tour of the writing culture, which wasn't Mm. too much of a stretch because it was my first semester and I was truly an outsider. I could Mm. be a participant observer more than I could now. Right. And um, I know it was probably around 30 of them that said, sure, you know, we'll you're you're welcome to uh, visit or maybe just the chair visited with me or they, they sent somebody from the department, but, and then I asked them all the same questions, you know, um, uh, how do you teach, you know, uh, what are your challenges with first year seminar? How do you teach the WID course? What kind of support do you need? So I remember one day sitting, sitting upstairs in this building in a conference room um, at the time, the French and the Italian department were one group and um, they were sitting there and uh, and I asked them, what kind of support do you need? So you, I should also give you a little context and let mm-hmm. you know that at Dickinson, we have this um, uh, rule that everyone has to teach first year seminar once per sabbatical cycle. Right. So as a result, we have faculty tenured and tenure track faculty from across the disciplines mm-hmm. teach, um first year seminar. We don't have the, the, the problem with exploited contingent labor that a lot of um, places do, do. I mean, it's not like we don't have that problem at all, but not in that, mm-hmm. at, at that level. Um, and so um, th- I was, I was, I, I know that they understood about the English writing center because most of the people, if not all around that table had taught first year seminar, which is a, a writing focused first year seminar. And so, you know, they had to assign essays and give feedback and teach the writing process and and um, all of that. And so they knew how a writing center worked. And so um, 
you know, when I asked them that question, what kind of support do you need? Um, one, um, uh, what do you call it? A uh, senior colleague um, in the French and Italian department said, I think we should, uh, I think we, we could use a writing center just like um, we have for English. Our students could really use it. They were very good. Th- th- we had a writing in the disciplines graduation requirement. So most of the foreign language classes also had a writing in the disciplines mm. class, you know, so, and they were just, they were just um, following the actful standards and, you know, like foreign language teachers do trying to teach reading, writing, speaking, and listening the whole, mm-hmm. the whole, um, gamut of those mm-hmm. skills. Yeah. So, um, I thought, oh, wow, you know, that's, that's cool. That has so many interesting possibilities for the writing center. You know, I should, I should tell you, I'm not, um, bilingual. I'm, I'm, um, never reached pr- proficiency in another language to my great shame. And that might have to do with, you know, my age and generation in part, but, um, uh, so I, I put together an advisory or a, a planning committee mm-hmm. and um, discovered that I don't know about seven or eight of the languages wanted in. And then the next year we were, when, when they heard how it was working from their colleagues, we were joined by um, the ones that, you know, didn't, didn't mm-hmm. in, in the very beginning, but um, that's, that's how that happened. I, I took advantage of the opportunity that I was new and uh, and it was an initiative that coincided with our college's um, global ed mission, which is big and important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many um, department? How many um, language departments are now have a have a share in this writing center? Um, so we offer writing tutoring in eleven languages, one of them being English. So ten. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that almost? all of the foreign language um, departments or is it all of them? No. It, uh, well, Greek and Latin didn't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Are, you know, for obvious reasons, I think, but mm-hmm. yeah, but that's most of them. So that um, was in 2000. Was this in 2009 when it started? Well, it started in 2009. I guess we, we, we started the um, foreign language writing tutoring in 2010. So, so a, de- a little over a decade now. You've been, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Can I ask? Um, because the book came out, I don't even, this is 2021, last year, right? March 2020, just I got the darn thing in the mail, you know, and I thought, nobody cares about this, everybody wants to know how to do online right now. (laughs) Well, I remember seeing it come through, I think it was Paul Matsuda who, um, on one of the listservs, he, um, you know, highlighted it. And I was like, I was so excited about it and actually had it written down that we wanted to ask you to write a blog article for the, for the blog. It was before we were doing the podcast. And then anyways, everything happened. (laughs) And then when Mickey came back around and said that they had um, written a review of the book in WLN um, and would we do an interview? I was like, yes, it's been on my to-do list. So we're really excited to have this moment with you. And because I'm sure it was eclipsed by so many things in March of 2020. Yeah, fell into a black hole, but yeah, we all fell into that black hole. <laughs> we did. And just what a perfect, I mean, it's just such a, I, yeah, we need to dig in because I just feel like it's such a, 
perfect um, moment to be talking about this given internationalization and diversity and inclusion efforts institutionally nationwide. I just feel like it's such a it's such a good moment to to be highlighting this book. Um, yeah, Wija, sorry, you had a follow up question. I think um, I feel like the follow up question you kind of touched upon when when uh, you mentioned and also in the book you mentioned the the one question people asked you as a director and you really and you really didn't like was are you bilingual? So why did that question bother you? Oh. Um... It's not that I didn't like that question or I was put off by it. It's more like um, uh, being bilingual. I, I think it's it's a it's a, an amazing capacity and an amazing power or advantage for a person. And I it's it's more out. I envy people who are, and I wish I was. And so when somebody says, "Well, what language do you speak?" I, I feel a little like sad because I can't say, oh, well, I speak Spanish too or whatever, you know? And so, um, but, but, you know, I, I, in, in some ways, I think that has a, a positive side to it in that, you know, I'm sure there are other writing center directors like me who are not um, bilingual um, and that shouldn't put you off from trying to do a multilingual yeah. writing center if it's, makes sense to you and your institution and your colleagues in the foreign languages. Then moving on with the book, the title Internationalizing the Writing Center, what does internal internationalizing mean in the context of writing centers? Yeah, I mean, I think it means a lot of things. And I, I don't mean to uh, try to be comprehensive about it. I recently listened to your interview with Mickey um, in which she was talking about internationalizing in the sense of talking to writing center directors in international locales, I think, about how they have adapted and changed the North American model. So that's to me, is incredibly fascinating. And of course, that's the work you do with your blog that's so compelling and interesting, and that's important. Um, you know, w- when I talk about internationalizing, I, I'm thinking along the lines of um, the opening the doors, as I say in the book, to languages other than English, which then allows for all kinds of conversations, um, none of which I have a definitive answer to, but I can tell you in my writing center, all kinds of conversations have come up around uh, native speakerism, you know, and who, who, who gets to tutor in a language and, um, you know, the cultural differences in writing and all, all these issues. To sort of make this more concrete in terms of what a multilingual writing center looks like. Um, and I, I'm really curious about like how, I know it's in the book, but maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about how that um, tutors are trained and then what theoretical frameworks are you drawing from? I know that, you know, TEFL and TESOL and um, second language acquisition and all of these different um, schools of thought and, and, and um, disciplinary lenses can inform this kind of model. So could you could kind of talk a little bit about tutor training and how you're drawing on these different scholarship areas? When I started working on this multilingual writing center, I saw it research and I couldn't find any research on 
training tutors in foreign languages. Um, and so that put me in the position of, well, I guess I, I, I don't know if this is too much to say, but kind of starting a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And so by no means do I think I've ended the conversation or anything. I mean, there. I think if other people get into this, there's so much more interesting work and questions to be done. But, you know, I, I, uh, I had to start someplace. Mm-hmm. So um, we trained the tutors. And by we, I mean my associate director and I, he is a um, multilingual specialist. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, he's he's been deepening the training since he started working with me. He's a person with a degree in um, ed studies who um, focused on multilingual uh, multilingualism. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So okay. That's, that's training. And mm-hmm. so, so we're taking a lot of, um, you know, theoretical work. And um, thinking about the practical dimensions, I mean, mm-hmm. we, do, we do discuss theoretical concepts with the tutors, but, you know, we really want to be able to give them a toolbox like you would in any tutor training class, right? That kind mm-hmm. of give and take between here's some theory, now here's some tools you can use in a session. Mm-hmm. And I, when I train the English writing tutors, I do a semester long class. I can't, I don't have that luxury with the foreign language writing tutors. A lot of them are students who have come back from study abroad and they've attained a high level of proficiency or, you know, they're not necessarily, given the number that we have, I can't expect them all to take a tutor training course. So um, we do um, sessions like six or seven hours of training during the first week of class. And then we do monthly staff meetings with them. And we what we cover is is pretty much what I cover in the book. So, you know, questions of, well, where do you where do you even start with a session? Um, I, I talk to them about, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? The oldies, but the goodies from writing centers, HOC versus LOCs, and then say that binary doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. And thinking about ways that you would need to toggle back and forth between LOCs and HOCs. When, when, when is a, and it's not even an LOC, a sentence level errors. When are sentence level issues, the things that you have to um, focus on primarily in a session first and foremost. And, but also, you know, what are, what are some writing issues? You know, we, we've talked about, um, students who may be writing for acquisition. Maybe it's a 101 class and really the purpose of the assignment is for acquisition. By the time they're up into the 200 level, they might be um, interpreting works of literature and doing things like that, but you have to start somewhere. So um, if they're um, writing for for um, acquisition and maybe it's describe your hometown or something, we can still talk about writing. We can talk about you know, choice of details. We can talk about how sentences connect. You know, it's 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 maybe not good enough that they can just uh, write grammatically um, one sentence after the other that's disconnected. So you know, we look at it. What what is it on the sentence level? You know, um, so 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 we use some um, uh, concepts from second language research to give them a toolbox. We talk about noticing, right, and and. Can the writer notice their errors um, or or do they need help noticing? And then what do you do if they can notice and what do you do if they need help noticing? You know, we talk about um, how to have conversations that encourage hypothesis testing, um, how to um, ask questions 
that solidify learning because they're tapping into a student's metalinguistic awareness. We talk mm-hmm. about, um, and Ben Rafis talks about this in, in his um, last book, um, as, as well as others. It's a, it's a common concept in the field, right? But um, negotiated interaction mm-hmm. and, and, and how um, so much nuance in language use can come out of those kinds of conversations where you're talking about, well, this word connotes this and this word connotes and, you know, or phrase or whatever it is. Um, so, so those are some of the nuts and bolts working with, with, with uh, documents. But then we also talk about um, issues of translation, right? So, um, you know, Google translate being the, uh, the, the devil to the, to the foreign language department, you know, what, how can, you know, what do we do with Google Translate? How do you know if somebody's used it? You know, um, um, and then what do you say to them? Here at Dickinson, using Google Translate is an academic integrity violation. So, so you know, other than maybe using it to find a word or something, it, become, it becomes an issue. And why students might do that. But also the idea that um, translation or that translingual movement across languages, right, and back again, and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. Um, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The question came up early on, well, what language should we have the session in? You know, should we have the session partly in English instead of the target language? And that's, um, we have answers to that question. But if you ask me, a lot of research needs to be done on that question because that's very complicated and ripe for some empirical study. Um, we also talk about um Far, well, foreign language anxiety, right? About creating a positive learning environment for students who have anxiety about practicing in the, you know, fear that um, they're going to make a fool of themselves. We have we have a, a group of uh, tutors, five or six, called overseas assistants. They are like TAs that come from our overseas study abroad locations to assist foreign language professors and. They have two or three hours in the writing center. So we, we often have students going to the OSAs who are lovely, wonderful people, but saying, you know, maybe being a little nervous because here's this native speaker coming right from Malaga and I'm just trying to learn Spanish and my accent is funny. And, you know, and so how you support and and uh, and and um, enable those students to do their work without so much self-confidence, uh, self-consciousness, creating, um, you know, a, a welcoming space. Um, and then the, it's the um, the other another aspect of the training is about, um, you know, culture, culture and writing. And to me, that's the most that's the most slippery. You know, I, that's the chapter in my book where I think. I didn't, I didn't quite nail it. You know, I, I, it it was really slippery to me. Um, And I ended up at the end of that chapter having more questions than answers, but nevertheless, we continue the conversation. Could you just share uh, briefly what you mean when you say that it was slippery? The extent to which, uh, all right. So I, I start from the premise that um, cultural differences there are different there are different concepts of good writing from culture to culture but then when i read the literature on it you know well is it you know in asian cultures uh reader based prose is that a thing you know what is a thing actually you know i i i 
I, I know there are some differences, but what is, what are those differences? How do we understand them? How do we understand them without judging them and, and um, in, in, like in a racist way or something, right? Um, there was, there was a really interesting thing that happened the other day in the writing center. So because now we do Zoom tutoring, we didn't do that before. We're a residential college, but, you know, um, we're doing, we're doing some Zoom and some in-person sessions this year um, because some people don't want to come in and, you know, that kind of thing. And so when we decided we were going to continue with that, um, you know, I thought, why don't we open it up? to our writers and study abroad locations. There are some time zone issues, but we're open till 1030 at night and, you know, people. So um, I walked into the writing center the other day and um, one of my tutors was talking to my assistant, trying to find out who else might have worked with a student from study abroad. And, and I said, what, you know, what's wrong? And, and she said, well, I just had a session. Um, and this was a student who was Zooming in from Copenhagen. And, um, and the prompt, like, it just didn't look like anything I knew, you know, and, and, and I said to her, and, and this, the, the tutor um, had worked with the writer before when she was at Dickinson, um, and not studying abroad. Um, the tutor said to the writer, um, I can help you with your writing, but I really don't know what to do with this prompt. You know, and then I immediately said, you got to get me that prompt. I want to, you know, I want to see what it is about it. Um, so she's still in the process of doing because this happened like three days ago. But I thought, what an interesting way. You know, we tell them concepts of good writing can can um, differ across cultures. And we you don't want to be judgmental of writers, you know, and, and, and that kind of um, pedagogy. But then to actually have that come into her lap that way. You know, um, I, I actually I actually said to her, oh, Jesse, you need to write a tutor's column for WLN because I thought mm -hmm. that would be great. She yeah. should. Jesse, if you're listening, please write that column. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that would be super interesting because then we do have an actual piece of evidence to say, OK, this is very different and how it it differs. Right. And that's right. actually some, a question. um I've been always thinking about, you know, uh, as if I'm Chinese and there's always um, this thing about Chinese writing that we like to use very beautiful words because we value the rhetorical effects or things like that. But sometimes, you know, I wonder, oh, is it always like this? Is there something like we do value the argument and then sometimes using beautiful words makes the argument stronger or, or something like that? So... Yeah, but, but like you said, it's a complex issue and we need to collect a lot of things in order to say, okay, this is it, or this is in the direction of what it is. But having right. those conversations in the writing center, you know, in a writing center where we're combining cultural traditions of writing and, you know, um, uh, it, 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 it's kind of like it's a living laboratory for me and, and the issues that come up like that, it's just a place where those can rise to the surface. Yeah. That's that's what I was going to say. I feel like um what you're describing is is a true translingual space. Um you know, we've been in the field thinking about like the operationalization of translingualism. Um yeah. how do we how do we 
translate translingual theory into pedagogy and practice. And, and the space and the multilingual writing center you direct is, is a very, is, is an exemplar, it seems to me, of that kind of translingual exchange, which, which helps us to, I think, really see um, when different languages and cultures are exchanged in a writing center, it highlights the kinds of issues and opportunities and challenges that we are facing in a monolingual uh, writing center with English only, which is really just, is I'm still formulating my thought, but is not actually accurate, right? All of our writing centers are actually multilingual. <laughs> I mean, our students yes. are coming from multilingual backgrounds, but we're operating in this de facto monolingual, um, you know, state. And so what you were describing, for example, to, to, to illustrate what I'm trying to get at here, what you were describing about for example, the nervousness of the over of the student going to the overseas um, tutor and saying, "Oh, but you know, my accent and my accent in Spanish isn't like this person's accent; it, it isn't fluent." Um, that's what many of our students are feeling in our writing centers today. Our students who are coming into the monolingual English only writing center, they're bringing that same level of anxiety. But when we're in this translingual multilingual writing center, it really surfaces and we can see by comparison just how um, much our students are actually in, a, in our traditional writing centers feeling a lot of the same things. So your space is sort of bringing up this, a lot of the issues that we grapple with um, and helping us really see them more clearly, I guess. Yeah, that, that's, that's what it um, feels like to me too. You're listening to the podcast of the blog, Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders. To learn more about our guests, visit wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. And now back to the conversation. So I have about 74 tutors. Yeah, 41. Wow. I have 74. 41 in English and 33 in foreign languages. All students who are matriculated at Dickinson, um, as a graduation requirement, have to take a language through the intermediate level. And mm -hmm. so everybody's a first and second and sometimes third, fourth and fifth language learner in that space. So in terms of my English speaking, like roughly, I, I sketched this out. I'm looking at my cheat sheet. Um, we have about 26 of those 41 tutors who are from monolingual, like English speaking homes, right? Six who are multilingual and nine who are multilingual international students. So they're not um, English predominant countries. And then in the foreign language, we have 23 who are U.S. students um, and 10 who are international students. Mm -hmm. And they're teaching all. So, for example, um, one of my um, tutors, shout out to Ni, um, is from Vietnam. Um, she is tutoring English, but she's also a student of Chinese at the mm -hmm. 
So she is tutoring, also tutoring just starting this year, Chinese writing. So she's learning her third language in her second language mm-hmm. and is tutoring both. Right. So we have all those kinds of complexities. I mean, you know, we could, we could um, meaning my associate director, John, and I could write articles and books for, for right. years. There's just so much there yeah. we could talk about. Yeah. Right. And kind of... Um, so um, situating that within the larger conversation that's happening now around Stan, I don't know if you heard our interview with Laura Greenfield um, yes. or us out in a way, just around standard language ideology. And also um, you, you kind of, you, you talk about this, you talk about um, writing the book in a time of blatant linguicism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to kind of ask you, what, what do you mean by that? What is linguicism and, and, and how is that kind of, um, speaking to this moment we're inhabiting around linguistic justice and linguistic racism. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I define um, linguicism. I, I suppose in, in, it's it's uh, in its simplest form, right? It's just a, um, a privileging of English, you know, and and. And in its worst form, a privileging of standard English instead of varieties of English. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, it, in our writing center, we're, so when we recruit tutors, we are always trying to recruit for diversity. And then we're always trying to create a center and a team that values inclusivity, equity, and belonging, which isn't hard at all because they, you know, those are the values of um, I would I'm going to generalize and say those are the values of Dickinson students um, for the most part. In terms of uh, recruiting from for diversity, it becomes even more complicated. Some sometimes I'm thinking diversity. We need more um, science students in the English Writing Center. Diversity. We need more students of color or you know LGBTQ students. And other times. Uh, diversity. We need more international students who are who are working with writers in English. We need more um, domestic students who have studied abroad. And so, so you know, if, if you're if you're going in with a French paper, you can choose to go to the writing tutor of the OSA who's coming from Toulouse, or you can go to uh, a U.S. student who doesn't, you know, it has learned French over their high school and college life and studied abroad and acquired it because mm-hmm. that's a different kind of inspiration. I can do that too. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so just, just um, being, being a space for all kinds of language learners, not assuming you have to be a native speaker to be a tutor. We, we do the opposite of that. And then, you know, just just um, allowing students all different kinds of experiences of language learning, depending on who they work with. And that could be more than one person if they come more than once, which they often do. Right. And that sort of like breaks those boundaries or just the 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 stigma or the stereotype around, oh, um, I need if I'm going to get tutoring, I need to be tutored by a native English speaker or a native French speaker. Again, that space that you are, you know, the, the, the multilingual writing center helps us to see, to break down those boundaries and to see more clearly that it's not about native speakerism. It's not about 
tutoring isn't necessarily about expertise in the language, but about expertise in tutoring. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just so much, yeah, so much there that I'm still processing. Me too. So much I'm still processing. (laughs) You you discuss this term inclusive, um, internationalizing and inclusivity, and we were just talking about it. At the top of page five in the introduction, um, you you have a, a passage that kind of um, addresses that, and we were wondering if you could read that and then sort of expound on it. Because the MWC is conceived of as an inclusive space that employs a wide variety of language users, it openly flouts the privileging of Native and the concomitant delegitimizing and marginalizing of non-Native speakers. The MWC vitiates Native speakers' power and sense of superiority over those who feel othered by it. In fact, native speaker privilege undermines the mission of the MWC when it causes students to avoid learning other languages for fear that they will never be able to speak or write correctly like a native. Native speaker privilege is potentially reified in the MWC if writers disesteem tutors who are not native speakers. Neither a problem nor a liability nor the manifestation of linguistic deficiency Multilinguality is instead a solution, a capability, and a strength that makes possible a pedagogy that internationalizes the writing center. That is so beautifully written um, and so crisp. I And that's sort of what I was trying to get at, you know, just saying how the MWC really is helping us see in very real ways and authentic ways the value of multilinguality. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else there that you kind of want to expand on um, I, 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 or a thought that came to you as you were reading? Um, I, when I read the last sentence, which, you know, I wrote a while ago and I haven't um, read again, I, I was, I, I have a student in my class this semester who is auditing um, a class I'm teaching and uh uh, she's she's from Argentina, and I met with her over the summer um, to talk about auditing the class. Uh, and, and you know, she's just visiting Pennsylvania for the year. And um, I remember uh, her apologizing to me over and over again because my English isn't good. She would say, mm-hmm. and I kept saying to her, "But you know, I understand what you're talking about. Your English is fine." And, and I thought she said it more than once and she kept talking. I mean, she was doing most of the talking and I just thought um, you're a little self-conscious, but you're so brave. I mean, could I do that? Could mm-hmm. I feel like my, my Spanish isn't very good and, mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, keep expressing myself the way she mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, she was, she was, uh, and finally I said to her, um, you know, I direct a multilingual writing center, so uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I think your um, your ability, you know, your English ability—it's a superpower. It's you know, it make it's 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 something I value in you. So you don't you don't have to apologize for your English t- to me or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it kind of it kind of brought that that moment to mind. The feeling, um, well, I can remember. You know, I'm I've been I've been teaching writing for thirty three years. So, you know, if I go back to year one, two, three, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember the whole, oh, geez, I have an international student in my class. What do I do with them? They were really problematic to me at one point. Mm-hmm. And mainly it's because I was new. I was young. I had no tools in the toolbox. Right. And and just not not even realizing the implications of of thinking that I'm this is a vulnerable moment. I'm admitting something ugly about my past <laughs> to you guys. But, you know, and, and, right. and, you know, what it means now to um, revalue that linguistic skill, you know, and, and see it for, um, you know, what's truly impressive about it, you know, and, yeah. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think what you just shared is, is, is very true for many instructors of writing today, still, you know, feeling that nervousness or that anxiety around, I am not equipped to work, you know, to help this international multilingual writer. I am not a TESOL person. I hear that all the time in my role, um, as associate director of multilingual writing, I hear that. And, um, and exactly, and this, and what you just said in the in your book, and what you just said here about about revaluing the the English language learner, the international writer, that revaluing that is is, a, is the moment we're in. But something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that we can't necessarily, um, or maybe we shouldn't, just in light of you know, our, our institutional and cultural and social and political, hopefully efforts to towards social justice and anti-racism that is it enough, you know, to value and celebrate multilingualism, you know, and the, the, that our multilingual students are an asset to look at it from a proficiency, not a deficiency model. All of that is true, but is that enough? And, and how do we kind of look at the systemic um, institutionalized ways in which multilingual writers are being delegitimized um, through possibly, um, you know, implicit or, or not really visible ways. So we can celebrate them in, the, in this way, but then if the system is still operating in such a way that delegitimizes them or others them, then how much, um, how effective is that celebration, if, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. and I don't, I don't mean to be um, glib about it, you know, in that way. I don't. No, I, I know you don't. I'm curious. Like, what do you think about that? First of all, I think um, if if you don't, you know, revalue them, celebrate might be a corny word, but, you know, revalue, mm-hmm. uh, revalue them. You can't do the work of systemic critique. Yeah. Right? So that's the first step. That's the, the first, step. like you have to have that mindset. Right. And then you can start um, doing the work of systemic critique. But um mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think the, something I write about in the book, uh, I really appreciated the work of, um, Suresh Kanagaraja and Mm -hmm. his, his, um, uh, analysis, his exploration of, uh, English dominance in academia. Right. And, um, you know, I think as long as as that's in play. I mean, there, you know, th- there's a lot of parts to the system. Um, right. And, and um, so 
So I think as long as, you know, standard English is the gate to careers in publication, um, you know, we have a, we have a, a, a huge system to work against. And, and, and the writing center, I think, can be uh, a part of that critique and that solution. But I, I mean, I get over, I get overwhelmed with it thinking when, when, when I listen to the arguments about linguistic justice and everything, and I, I'm, I'm agreeing, like I, of course, you know, I, I get it. But, and then I think, how are you going to convince everyone else? You've convinced me, but how are you going to get the whole profession to, and, and, and you know, uh, people like um, Asao in a way and Vershawn Young, they're doing this amazing work in, in that direction. But I, but I'm like overwhelmed by, by the thought of it. Um, and I, I just, I just don't see how we're going to get there. I recently on Facebook joined the Facebook group reviewer two must be stopped. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. It's, no. oh, it's a, well, it's, they have this amazing sense of humor and a lot of them are scientists, but basically they're posting on Facebook about this, you know, anonymous, uh, reviewer two and how reviewer two just slams, slams <laughs> in the v- review. And just after I joined it about six weeks ago, a lot of people were, were posting about, um, reviewer two saying, this needs to be in standard English. You need to get a native speaker to read this over. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I posted on the, the site, I said, well, you know, isn't it important that, that you guys are coming up with new scientific findings? Can't, can't like the editor of the journal just do that? Like, why are we so hung up about that? If these scientists are moving, um, you know, yep. science forward with their, with their findings, you know, and, and it, I just get overwhelmed by. Yep. We're at the beginning of that work, you know, and, and how are we going to get there? I mean, I'm committed to getting there, but it's, it's one of those things where I, where I have to, I have to look at the local thing I can do. That's right. Because I don't get paralyzed by the enormity of where we need to go. Which is why I think your book is so important. I feel like that local, um, mm operationalization of this whole thing, that local translingual model is of such great value um, because it's serving as an example of a way of getting there, a way of starting to think outside of the orthodoxies, for example, of writing centers or of the monolingual, you know, native, native speakerism. When, when you talk about the system being much larger and you're trying to focus on what you can do, um, I resonate with that on many levels because uh, I was uh, thinking about what we're trying to accomplish here and looking at it as though it were a rock, a big rock, and we're trying to crack this rock and we're trying to crack it with, you know, our multilingual writing center um, and other things that we have in our toolbox. Sometimes those things feels like feel like tool, toothpicks. We're trying to use a toothpick to crack this big rock. Um, but there's when you were describing Dickinson College, you said that one of the requirements for the students is to graduate with an intermediate level in another language. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you feel like you know policies like that, institutional policies like that, could be something that helps to make a difference when we're cracking that rock? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we really think a lot about what kind of 
students we're we're graduating what kind of you know how we're training them you know the kind of uh, educated people we're putting out into the world and um you know what we have many um uh big goals civically engaged and people students who um understand sustainability you know in a larger context and and then global ed and and we have a commitment to um creating students with um intercultural competence and 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 so i suppose um you know you know in an understanding of um and an understanding of international context not just you know our little place in pennsylvania but the whole wide world you know we have a lot of international faculty we we do a lot of things to support these goals and we also look at how they intersect you know civic and sustainability and global ed and um but you know i also know that different institutions have different values right and so yeah i certainly think those kinds of policies will will help for us to have a more global sense and gosh if um there's any time in history we need to think about us as as a world working together it's right now in the middle of a global pandemic but um but yeah not everyone's going to going to do it i kind of wish they would but yeah so Noreen, in the book, you also uh, wrote that one thing that really mattered to you in this project was to uh, focusing on and including the tutors' narratives instead of just observing the sessions. Why did centering tutors' narratives matter to you? Because, you know, I, I think we all realize that when it comes to our writing tutors, you know, they're they're bright and capable and serious and reflective and many of them become the most amazing practitioners and then they become seniors and they leave us and so that's there's that sadness but um uh, i wanted to honor their voices uh, and their insights about their own practice and i discovered that um mining the uh client report forms in WC online was a was a very good way to get um, insights from them as as was just interview interviewing them directly um, and, and so I have all that kind of uh, all, the, all the voices through those venues in the book but um, you know it it would if I wrote this book internationalizing the writing center without their voices it might appear that I you know ooh internationalize the writing center all on my own, you know, and I certainly did not. <laughs> yeah. So they contribute all the time and, and have, um, you know, ha- helped us to evolve our practices and, and, uh, you know, really, really think about how we do what we do and what matters. As we kind of start coming to a close here, what is your hope for this book? Well, yeah, I really thought of this book um, as an act of service to the profession. Mm-hmm. There was no professional reason that I had to write this book, like to be tenured mm-hmm. or promoted, or I didn't need to write this book. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm a scholar like the rest of us, and I like to write, but um, I saw it as a, as a service to the profession. When I saw that the model gained traction and became sustainable, I th- I thought 
this could be another model that some people might want to employ. And, um, you know, as I wrote in the introduction, um, people started hearing about it uh, through word of mouth, but also I would give presentations at conferences like IWCA every now and then. And um, people would visit, you know, Carol Severino's been here and, um, you know, some other folks have come to visit. And um, I've gotten calls from tutors um, who said, uh, I, I'm I'm doing this research project or honors project, uh, and uh, I I I wanted I was thinking about foreign language tutoring, and they've interviewed me, um, and so I, I kept getting questions and visitors and asking, how do you do this? How do you do that? And then I started writing down the questions, like here's what mm-hmm. they want to know how to do, you know. And so I thought of it as a service to the profession and a practical guide. If you want to set up a foreign language writing center and you just think, yes, if I had world enough in time, there's so much I'd have to figure out. Well, I've done some of that work. I've done the start of that work. You know, Mm -hmm. there's so much more that is not in that book that could be in that book um, that, you know, I don't even know that I don't know probably, but um, I, my hope is that um, people start adopting this model in a more sustainable way and and they and they realize how it actually enhances and complements the work of an English writing center. So they're not seeing it as separate or, oh, um, three of our tutors are Spanish speakers. So we're going to have some Spanish writing tutoring, you know, that, that they really see it as a model, um, as you were saying, Anna, that brings all these questions and complexities uh, to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that for our international colleagues who are subscribers to the blog and and the journal and the podcast, who are coming from very multilingual contexts themselves, like this, um, you you have offered something really valuable um, about, you know, how to conceptualize a multilingual writing center, because so many models out there that I know colleagues, for example, in my home country of Lebanon, have been looking a lot at... Um, you know, the North American English model, but this is in a lot of ways more fitting because Lebanon, for example, is a multilingual context, Arabic, French, and English. Um, and so, yeah. I want to I see when in international context, um, my hope is that those writing centers won't just focus on English and forget their, right. their languages, right? I mean, right. that that that's um, the other thing. And I think when colleagues in our organization in IWCA or whatever you, um, you know, I know there are people who are invited to go and consult and talk to um, people overseas about the North American model. I I hope they remind them, you know, or or talk about how would you integrate that with, with uh, the, the, the languages of, of the country where that writing center is situated and not just say, well, we're going to have an English dominant. Um, right. Writing center. Yeah. yeah. I wish I had 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 this book because I, I did mm-hmm. just that. I was consulting in Lebanon at a, at a university that's English medium, but that, you know, is also French and Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this would have been so ideal to have, to, to take with me. This was before you wrote the book. Um <laughs> But my other second question was about 
what questions are you left with? You've, you've said it a few times throughout our conversation here that, you know, maybe you have more, there are more questions left unanswered. Um, and so after you wrote the book and all of this reflection you've done and kind of looking back at that process um, and all of your findings and contributions, what questions are you left with that are sort of, you think are still worthy of picking up and pursuing, maybe not you, but any of, you know, our listeners who are interested in kind of pursuing this thread? Oh, there's probably about 150, but I will, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um I'm I'm uh, grappling with that, which I think another slippery concept of translingualism. So, I mean, this isn't even a generational thing. We are all old enough to remember when that conversation started because it was what, 2011 or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then um, people started saying, and I, you know, I went, I went to um, conferences. I remember one year, it might've been at C's, um, I purposely went to all the ones with translingual in the title. Mm-hmm. And as I listened, I realized, oh, people are are defining this differently. Like, that, you know, they're, th- people are not in agreement about what this is. They're, they're wrangling with it. And then a bunch of stuff came out that said, okay, cool, cool down. It's not code switching. It's not code switching. Right. Well, what is it then? Right. And I started thinking about it in relation to the writing center, you know, and I focus on the prefix trans crossing. over, Right. And so some of the questions that I have resonating are, you know, why do they, why do the students cross over? When do they cross over and when and why do they cross back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what's going on with that? And in some ways, that's like as part of a process question. I when um before I hired my multilingual specialist, there was a year um, in between um, uh, administrators, and in that year, I taught the um, uh, English writing acad- English academic writing course for international students. So, you know, I thought, well, this is cool. I, I need this experience. I've taught um, uh, multilingual writers in like freshman seminar, but I never taught a whole class of multilingual writers. And I remember, you know, I had a statement on the syllabus that said, um, your, your other languages are welcome in this class. Do not feel like, you know, you can't use those other languages. Um, and I remember asking them, once in class. So how many of you think maybe you'd pre-write for whatever the prompt was in your native language, you know, and then maybe write again in, in English. And, and, and they were, they, they, so many of them. And um, the vast majority in this particular class were Asian, Chinese, or um, Vietnamese. And, and they were saying to me, I, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't deal with this prompt in Vietnamese or in China. I just, mm-hmm. no, 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 I'm going to write it in English. And, and I just thought, well, interesting. Why not? You know, what is it about that language that you felt somehow constrained you in relation to this prompt? Right. Is it because you learned, I think we were analyzing a short story or something, I don't know. And is it because you learned about it in English? You know, what was it? And so that's one of those translingual things. Why don't you want to do that? I'm, I'm sure they had good reason. I totally trust them. 
but you know, so much research on that crossing over in a translingual space and why it's done and when it's done and when it's not done. So such a good question. Yep. I, that resonates with me a lot. I've been thinking about a similar thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about making, you know, being translingual in our composition classrooms, for example, and and allowing students to read in their native research articles in their native language or pre-write in their native language, I have also encountered that scenario where students say, I can't, I can't do that. That doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. Um, And I've just left that with a, with a question mark. Yeah. That sounds like a really a very good uh, transition to normally how we end this conversation. And yeah. before I do that, I just want to make sure I let everybody know who's listening. This book also has a lot of practical um, tools. I really love chapter six, where you're talking about the five appeals that uh, different um, multilingual writing center people can utilize to talk to different stakeholders. And chapter six also has a conversational prompt that can help you bridge that or just start having that conversation with other people. Because you do say in the introduction, this isn't just about having tutors that can speak multiple languages. This is actually about having that financial support, that institutional backing to sustain the center. And I thought that was really important. So thank you for including that. <laughs> thank you. Practical. Um, as we wrap up, um, You've just shared the questions that you're thinking about right now that are lingering from this book and from just the general discussion we've had today and the topic. Um, Could you share with us um, any other elusive questions you might have that are um, not necessarily related to this topic, but uh, something that at one day you want to be able to explore as well? Yeah. Yeah. And I do have one that isn't really related to this topic. Um, you know, I I think a lot of us have lately been thinking about the crisis we have with civil dialogue, you know, civil conversation, civil, yeah, misinformation, post-truth. And, um, so I had a conversation with the tutors, it was before COVID, um, about, um, Two, two of the, two of the, um, two of my tutors brought to the staff's attention that some of their um, friends who who were um, yeah, Latinx students in particular, the two tutors were were both Latinx students too, um, didn't like to bring some of their writings that were um, more political, you know, to the white tutors in the writing center because they didn't feel like they got a good conversation out of it. So we, I said, Oh my gosh, thank you for telling me that. And, um, this started a really strong equity, belonging, inclusivity. But the question that I asked the tutors was, well, how do you have challenging conversations? And they said, um, some of them said, well, I discuss grammar because I'm uncomfortable and others, I mean, they were very honest. I mean, it was wow, very frequent. And others, others said, um, in a similar vein, I don't, it's not my job to change someone's opinion, you know? And so then that started us 
thinking about how do we have challenging conversations? What are the tools that you give tutors to do that work? I mean, if you're going to have an anti-racist writing center, you cannot not ask that question. Um, you know, and then and then I was reading a Lee McIntyre's book called Post Truth. It's a do you know this book? I love that book. Um, you know, and I started I started thinking about um, he calls it uh, what did he call it reason reasoned uh, it, it had to do with confirmation bias. I can't remember his actual term, but it's about when um, writers um, write or argue in such a way uh, that they're just confirming what they already think, which makes me think about how students are taught to write in high school. You come up with a claim and then you have your points, as opposed to uh, what Rosenwasser and Stephen talk about in the book Writing Analytically, which is the best ever book to use for writing classes. And that is um, um, reasoning from evidence to claims, you know. And so I'm thinking, oh, Lord, you know, we have to we have to get beyond the, these tutors beliefs about people having a right to their own opinion, you know unchallenged or unconversed about? And also, how do we deal with, um, um, or what tools do we give tutors to help writers um, confront and and deal with their confirmation bias? You know, I mean, there's a very practical tool of reasoning from evidence to claims instead of the other way around. But there's so much more going on, like in terms of inner interpersonal relations, you know, and and beliefs about um, personal space uh, or, you know, personal cognitive space and, and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so that has been on my mind a lot lately, you know, <laughs> very, very big and very urgent question. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for thinking of that. I mean, I heard when I was listening to our conversation, the earlier part of our conversation, I was just thinking, so how is, you know, training a tutor in a multilingual writing center so different from training a tutor in a monolingual English writing center? And it didn't seem that different at all. But now as I, I hear this question you're raising, and it's not just about, you know, the, the, the students that wrote that paper and said, we can't really bring it to your tutors. But it's also about this moment right now. I think it's very, it must be really interesting to be a multilingual writing center administrator in this current moment mm-hmm. um, and and be tackling training tutors to not just, you know, tackle challenging issues, but these particular issues of the time. Yep. I think, wow, that's a <laughs> big charge. I think, you know, it's funny, um, Noreen, we usually end with what's a book you're reading, but I kind of, I don't know, did you just finish reading Post Truth or is that, is there something else you're reading at the moment that, um, for, for pleasure, even not necessarily heavy, heavy stuff? (laughs) Well, I mean, story has gotten me through the worst of COVID. And so I've been averaging a novel a week, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I read voraciously. I'm getting ready to read Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle soon. That's, that's, that's one that's on the, on the list. Um, but I suppose a meaningful book I'm reading now is with my, uh, oddly enough, um, this semester I'm teaching, uh, uh, the health studies senior seminar, <laughs> um, because, um, I was asked, I, I, I have a very deep interest in writing and wellness mm. and, um, that's what you know we're we're um talking about and 
There's a book by James Pennebaker, who's a psychologist at the University of Texas, who's done um, uh, research on the connection between expressive writing, right, and and physical wow. and emotional, yeah, health. And so his book, Opening Up by Writing It Down, which um, is one of these books by academic psychologists that are written for mm-hmm. uh, a general audience, was very, very uh, meaningful right now for so many reasons when we're all thinking about our wellness and our students' wellness. Yes. Um, did you listen to our interview with, um, oh my gosh, Bob Yagelski? Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. I, he mentioned this research. Yeah, because he mentioned, yeah. I couldn't hear it too good. I know the it's sound quality. Maybe if I put my AirPods in, it'll be better. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the transcript is there. You can read it. I mean, oh, it's not okay. super cleaned up, but anyway, he, he, he does writing and wellness and well-being, but um, he mentions Pennybacher as well. Yeah. yeah. Yep. As, as like central to think his thinking around that. that oh, he, he started it. A thousand, yeah. A thousand um, experiments later, you know. With, right. With, I, I didn't realize that. Is this a new book? The one you just mentioned? No, it's a new edition of an older book. And the Got new it. edition is better than, I mean, he's revised it greatly. And the new edition, it's, it's him and Joshua Smythe. Who, yeah. Yeah. It's very, very good. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, Noreen, thank you so much for this really inspiring conversation. It was really nice to talk to you and meet you and and learn from you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Uh, you know, may, are make, making me think of the next steps and for the work I have to do. Oh, that's good. We're so glad it was reciprocal. Um, and we're, we feel very confident that this conversation is going to be really, really helpful for so many people and that your book is such an important contribution. So thank you for writing it, even though you didn't have to. <laughs> if you ever want to visit and see the model in action. Oh my goodness. I think that would be us. We'll be there. <laughs> That's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion. We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru, who provided our theme song. For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. 